0: So, good afternoon and welcome to the Scottish Parliament. My name's Esther Roberton and I'm one of the Directors of Scotland's Futures Forum, based here at the Parliament, who are working uh, on the Festival of Politics. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to, not the event I ever imagined I'd be chairing, on Data Vultures and Democracy. This year's event's actually celebrating the 18th year of engaging people of all ages and from all walks of life to participate in three days of spirited debate, And we're delighted you were able to join us and I'm really looking forward to asking you to engage in comments and questions uh, later in the session. I would say that I can remember 18 years ago, sadly for my sins, um, the scepticism there was about a festival of politics and did it not seem like a contradiction in terms, but I think it's a tribute to the Parliament and the group that organised this event to see the huge range of of topics covered in the programme and I hope you'll all be able to take advantage to uh, some of the others today. If you're keen, for those of you that are on social media, you can talk about the event today using the hashtag FOP2022. Today's event is looking at the effect of data on our democracy. We all know that information about us is collected and shared, often without our awareness or even our permission, by data gathering companies and the so called data vultures who's regulating this mass surveillance and how can we protect our privacy and democracy from this trend? I'm delighted to have three experts. I just have to hold the coats. Um, I don't know very much on this subject at all. Um, On my right, I have Professor Charles Rabb, who's a professorial fellow at the University of Edinburgh and a director of the Centre for Research into Information, Surveillance and Privacy. And we'll obviously have some very uh, interesting views on the subject that we're here to talk about. Beside Charles we have Professor Eva Luger and we're delighted that Eva's been willing to step in at very short notice. Kate Domit unfortunately had to withdraw at the last moment and Eva's just back from holiday and has stepped in so thank you Eva. She's co-director of the Institute of Design Informatics at the University of Edinburgh and Eva works with the World Economic Forum on issues of data and trust and then on Right, we have Dr. Sam Fowles. Sam's a barrister uh, who specialises in public and constitutional law and is the author of the book Overruled, you're allowed to hold it up, Sam, Overruled, Confronting Our Vanishing Democracy in Eight Cases. I'm Oh, you've already got one, Anne, I'm delighted. Um, I'm delighted to say that Sam will be in the garden lobby after the event, signing the book for anyone that wants it. Um, And we've been having some fascinating discussions um, earlier about the cases that Sam's been involved in, including the post office and others, which I'm sure we'll hear about today. So, as I said earlier, there will be an opportunity, I'd like to make it as engaged as possible, um, for you to make comments and ask questions during the event. But I'll get us going um, by posing some questions to the panel to get started. So, as I've already said, I come at this issue as an interested non-expert. I do know a little about data from time in the health service. But Charles, would you kick us off perhaps by explaining what data on us is collected who collects it and how is it used and perhaps even abused? Uh,
1: thank you very much, uh, Esther. Do you want to uh,
0: perhaps pull it a bit closer? Can everybody hear Charles? Okay. Is that is that better? Yep, yeah. yep. that's fine.
1: Uh, thank you very much, audience, for uh, coming on this, this uh, beautiful day. <laughs> and uh, just to set the right tone, um, the title of this rather threw me on Data Vultures, Destroying Democracy. Um, I don't know about vultures and I don't know about destroying, but... Vultures like dead meat, but data is alive. Um, I thought I'd mention that, and also that um, vultures urinate on themselves as a means of cooling their bodies. Um, don't try that at home or in the street. Uh, I just thought you might like to know that, and that's probably worth the price of the ticket. So Anyway, to move on to uh, less serious subjects, uh, Um, What kind of data are collected? Well, uh, it's probably a fairly self-selecting audience, and you probably know this already, but all kinds of data. Let's start with talking about personal data. Uh, There's an awful lot of it out there, everywhere. Some of it is very sensitive. Um, uh, Data about your identity, the facts, as it were, about your identity, your behavior, your movements, your shopping and entertainment habits, Uh, your likes and dislikes, gender, social, class, location, health, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And of course, it's used by companies to sell us things and maybe to make special offers to people uh, and not make those offers to other people, which immediately raises the question about discrimination uh, in in the marketplace. Um, Data, Personal data are used by governments to provide services, also used by intelligence services and law enforcement uh, as well for a variety of purposes, not all of which are plain or um, um, uh, made explicit. Um, data is used to designate groups and categories of people, and therefore data can be used to discriminate uh, it can make false assumptions, uh, mix people together who really don't belong together in a common uh, category. If uh, the ways in which that is being done it, uh, are, are not very uh, are not very uh, effective, um, it's used by political parties to campaign, to target messages, to influence voting. Uh, And if the micro-targeting of messages to what the different segments already want to hear, um, creating or reinforcing these filter bubbles of people who uh, supposedly think alike, um, then it, I think, interferes with the general public's ability to scrutinize what those messages are and to get an assessment of what's going on in the polity or or the public realm. If digital campaigning of that kind increases the circulation of fake news or disinformation, that would erode democracy, because it could tend to exacerbate divisiveness, uh, the absence of a dialogue across those divides, and therefore fragment the polity. So I've gone beyond the question of um, what kind of data to look at its effects on democracy. There is also policy-related data, and I've come to the end of my answer, Uh, data about the economy, about the environment, uh, about energy, the weather, transport, the big areas uh, of policy making. And the sophisticated analysis of data for these purposes is extremely important and extremely beneficial. Mm -hmm. That can be very beneficial, but there needs to be some oversight and control to make sure that what is done in the use of data in those ways is ethical, it's legal and in accordance with um, democratic and other values. and I think we'll be getting to those sorts of issues a bit later today., Lovely. thank you
0: very much indeed Charles, um, and a broad brush start to the to the conversation. Eva, given that kind of context that Charles has set, what do you think the main issues are? for de- democratic societies from that mass collection and use of data?
2: Um, OK, so I think there are different issues at different levels mm-hmm. um, and, and they relate specifically to the sort of the actors and the context. Um, so I'm going to answer in the context of citizens, I think, because that seems to be the most kind of relevant point at the moment. So a functioning democracy requires an informed population. You need to understand what it is you're agreeing to, you need to understand um, some of the wider debates in order to be able to reach public judgment, whether that be sort of in um, an everyday context or at the point of making a decision during an election. Um, And there are three factors I think that are affecting this. One is unconstrained data collection. So um, whilst we have regulation and um, people talk about data minimization as being a sort of a matter of course, in reality the practices that are employed by large corporations are largely manipulative and um, In many ways unconstrained uh, as more sensors are developed on your phone on the kind of systems that you use all the time more data is collected different types of data and that data is brought together with other types in order to be able to predict specific types of things about you as an individual and your behavior so um, we talk about large companies like Facebook and Google but um, there are also the companies that own the the devices in your pockets and the the, the smaller companies that create applications that you engage with all the time so it's it's a huge uh, almost like a wild west of, of, of a data ecosystem mm-hmm. if you like um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is media literacy. So this is like a really dated idea. People used to talk about media literacy about 15, 20 years ago, uh, and it died a death. But um, I think really we should be having those discussions again, because it's not just about understanding how data is collected. It's knowing where the power lies. Like, you know, who is who has created the news I'm reading in front of me? Who is pushing me towards buying this thing and why might they be doing that? All of those things are sort of the cornerstone of media literacy as an idea, helping us to understand the kind of the mediated information that we that we make decisions on the basis of every day and then the last thing is, is about systems interface design. Now, this is my sort of area of specialism. Um, and so obviously I would say that, wouldn't I, right? but, but actually I think it's, it's quite important and underrepresented because when we design systems, we, we design things to make you stick to them. Like we're, we're creating um, a sort of an interaction climate, if you like, that, um, that basically is trying to, um, to draw you in. We're, we're trying to attach, attract your attention and keep it. That's the whole goal of pretty much all of these services that you interact with, because the, m- the longer we keep your attention, the more data we get, the more likely you are to buy stuff. Um, and everything that you interact with has a series of design rules or heuristics that underpin them, um, and we all adhere to these rules. And if we break them when we design something, you'd notice. You'd notice and you'd think, this is rubbish to use. I won't use it. I'll use a different system. So it's like this vicious cycle. Like we design things to make you addicted to them, and you're <laughs> addicted to them so you don't want anything else. And yet these kind of uh, political problems, this wider sort of social Ecosystem within which um, we're asked to make decisions is becoming impoverished because of this kind of design. So I'm going to give you just a few examples of the kinds of things that uh, that we do. So, so one is um, we try and reduce the cognitive load that's placed on you. So here we're trying to create uh, repetitious actions to, to create flow, so that you you do things uh, like scrolling. That's the classic example is scrolling. You just keep going, don't you? Like 11 o'clock at night, you should be going to bed, but what you're doing is looking at Twitter for hours and hours and hours, and it's designed to make you do that. That little flick. Of the thumb you know um and we've probably all got RSI from that but it doesn't matter we love it right we just keep coming back for more the idea that the interface is uncluttered, so making things as simple as possible. But when you make things simple, you remove the complexity that's necessary for decision-making. And and that's the thing, that's really a lot of the crux of the matter. Everything is simplified to the point where, you know, it's binary. I mean, politics to some extent have always been binary, but I think more so today, where Mm. we're talking about these kind of extreme polarisation between different perspectives that almost look like warring factions through the kind of the mediated internet-based environment. Um, And... Part of that is the fact that we're trying to reduce things so that they look pretty to you and you want to use them. Um, thirdly, we seek what we call habituation. So this is where we create a, 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 an interface that's supposed to train you to use it in a particular type of way. Think about, the, the I mean, you know, not not particularly this company, but simply because I'm more familiar with their products as everybody is, I think, Microsoft, you know, they create systems, uh, sorry, and software that looks very similar across all the packages. And they do that so that you know how to use all of those packages over time. And and that's a form of habituation. But that habituation can be used for more nefarious purposes. So not just for software use, but for online experiences where the creation of things like tick boxes, for example, force you into particular types of behaviours. So like consent online, if you think about consent and um, normally you're asked to do something and you have to sign your name on a form. So if you're signing a mortgage deal, for example, I know that's a lot of money and probably not a good example, but you probably read that document more than once, you know, and then you sign your name on it and you get a bit sweaty and uncomfortable and there's some physical interaction that's going on there. Um, so when we talk about uh, digital systems, the, 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 the analog to that is is you checking a tick box. <laughs> we check a tick box all the time. And it's actually been researched to show that, that, that um, you're more likely to agree to something if it's framed for you as a tick box than if it's framed in a different way so we're training you to do stuff and and all of these complex and actually quite um problematic tasks are sitting below that that design rule and once we have your attention we have your data and once we have your data you can be known in ways that nobody's been able to know you before by companies that you don't necessarily recognize and you wouldn't know have your access to your data so these are the things i think that are problems for me
0: that's a really, a really important point. Um, and one of the things I, I heard when you were speaking there, Eva, was purpose. And I was thinking about the GERs, the economics um, statistics that are published every year, and it's what's the purpose, and that helps frame which data you collect and which data you publish. Um, and that applies to everything, whether it's your Tesco <coughs> club card or your Google account or whatever. So, Sam, can I ask you then, you've heard Charles, you've heard Eva describe some of the issues and the challenges. How do you see those developments and challenges fitting in with the kind of wider challenges that we're currently facing sure. to democracy?
3: Hello. I do thought I'd start by saying it's really nice to be on, on this side of the table because I was talking to Esther earlier and said the last time I was here I was protesting outside the building as a, as a student, so they, they've let me inside the gates, which is <laughs> quite nice. Um, I thought I'd start by breaking every rule of you know, gaining kind of authority uh, and tell you a story about a time when I was an idiot. Um, and this was during the AV referendum. And... I was still a student at that time, and I was really annoyed with the Liberal Democrats because they had um, reversed their position on tuition fees. And in my mind, AV was sort of associated with the Liberal Democrats. So I was kind of like initially a bit hostile to it. And you now I posted on Facebook and about kind of being sceptical. And a week or so later, I saw an advert that had been sent to me uh, talking about the cost of the AV system and how much it was going to cost and how this this might even have a negative impact on the NHS. And I thought, oh my God, that's disgraceful. I can't, you know, they've put up our tuition fees and now they're going to be taking money from the NHS. And I voted against uh, AV in the, in the, uh, the referendum. And that was possibly the stupidest political decision I've ever made. And it was wrong on every level. And... I later worked out that my friends, who had different opinions to me, had not seen that advert. Um, That advert had been sent to me because of the opinions that I was expressing and because I was a good target um, to believe that. It obviously wasn't true, by the way. I was completely wrong to believe it. Um, But the data that I had put out into the world... Through my social media interaction, through what I was clicking on the articles I was reading, through what I was tweeting, had been used to say, clearly this guy's going to be a bit gullible for this and is a good target that we can uh, uh, that we, we can we can hit and it worked and the reason I, I say this, and I'll get on to when that works on a, a bigger scale in a, in a moment, um, but this debate we 're now having about data is a is almost a microcosm for the general broader issues with, the, with our democracy and the erosion of our democracy. Because data impacts on the sort of spectrum, the prism through which we see the world. And we interact now so much online, we get our news online, we speak to our friends online, we date online. And even when we're not online, we're transferring data uh, online. And so it is now increasingly possible to control what a population believes about things through control of the online space. Secondly, it's now gone, the technology has now gone beyond that. And I think Charles mentioned behavioral micro-targeting. And this is what I was a victim of because it allows you not just to control how we see the world and the general prism for everyone, but to specifically target people who are particularly receptive to messages and actually tailor messages for particular consumers to change or alter how they might see the world or how they might vote. And as a re- so as a result, the gathering of data presents an unparalleled opportunity for control of the population. And this is where we get to the wider issues with democracy, because control of the population is what we're increasingly seeing in almost every aspect of politics. And I'll start... There are two ways, two themes that I want to highlight. And the first is bullshit. Um, Bullshit is a discourse and this is not me just swearing this is a uh, um this is a a term that's used by a a chap called harry frankfurter at princeton who wrote a a book called on bullshit and a bullshit discourse is what one not where someone is lying but where the truth is entirely irrelevant to the discourse and so as a lawyer it's fairly easy to cross-examine a liar you know, eventually, if someone's lying to me on the witness stand, I can I, I can pretty sh- pretty sure I'll back myself to get them to break. You can't cross-examine a bullshitter because the truth is entirely irrelevant to them, and that is what uh, the living our lives online and more importantly behavioural micro-targeting facilitates, because it facilitates a world where we believe. Uh, we're making decisions not on the basis of what is true and what is false, but on the basis of this sort of parallel reality that we are increasingly fed. And that makes it impossible to engage meaningfully uh, as, a dem- as a citizen in a democracy. The second theme is centralisation. And because it's not mom and pop shops, you know, around the corner that are, that are doing this, it's not your mate down the pub. It is governments and its corporations, even small ones. And as a result, what we see is the prism through which we're experiencing our reality, through which we're engaging with our society, is controlled increasingly by unaccountable individuals. And whereas before, you know, when it was talking about, and let's take strikes for an example, you might find out about the strike by interacting, I don't know, with strikers. Um, Now, you're equally likely to find out about the strike by looking at a a targeted message talking about how they earn 60 uh, grand per year. That's not true. But it's what a huge number of people think, according to uh, uh, Ipsos Mori. and so, and we have, we as citizens, have no way of controlling the decisions being made about our data. You know, we've got, we can't elect the people that are con, uh, controlling them. We can't fire them. We can't, in a lot of cases, even take them to court when they break the law. And so, this is problematic for democracy because decisions are being made about how we can discharge our powers as citizens by people that we have no control over.
0: Thank you very much. That's um, plenty of food for thought in that one. Um, can I maybe pick up on that and, and come, to, uh, come back to you, Sam, before I come back to the other two? Your legal work has mainly focused on ensuring that governments use their power efficiently and appropriately. How readily how ready, sorry, do you think the legal system, and democracy more generally, is, the legal system in particular, to deal with these issues?
3: Um, well, we're not, basically. <laughs> the, so, and we we'll we actually, the answer to that is we are getting, about to get significantly less ready. Uh, a few years ago, and just as I started in practice, the European Union brought into, uh, into effect the, the General Data Protection Regulation, Um, now this primarily focuses on regulation of the use of data at the point of collection and use so when you're putting your you know something into an online form when you're filling in a buzzfeed survey or something and they're collecting your data through that that's what the GDPR is is regulating so there is an extent to which the uh, GDPR provides a, a degree of protection and it gives citizens a cause of action against, uh, against people who collect and misuse their data and break the rules about how our data can be used. Um, and this is essentially based on a, a almost a principle of contract, um, which is, look, you want to use my data, you've got to follow the rules about how you do so. That principle is about to go. Legislation currently, before Parliament, brought in by um, the Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries, essentially, uh, and brought in conveniently just a few days before Parliament broke up, so no one could actually have a good look at it, uh, essentially reverses that principle. And it does a number uh, and and creates instead, it works from the principle that uh, companies have a right to use your data and your control over that data or rules governing it are sort of derogations from that right. and I've just mentioned a, number of the, a couple of the things that it, uh, that it does. Um, one of the first is to reduce how you can control decisions being made about you using AI. So at the moment, you can object to that, but you won't be able to once this, uh, this law is passed. Um, it also uh, reduces the data that's covered. Um, So your personal data is, it it looks at the personal data when it's collected, but not when it's handed on to someone else. And actually, generally, it's the handing it on to someone else and then using it that is problematic. Um, And it provides that, that, whereas at the moment, unless you have someone's consent, you have to A, have a legitimate interest for processing their data But even then, you have to decide, and if necessary, a court will decide for you, whether your legitimate interest outweighs their fundamental rights. You'll no longer have to do that. Mm. So individual rights are taken out of the equation. So the GDPR had some good stuff, much of that is going, but it also missed the fundamental point because it, it had no bearing on governance. It had no bearing on the fact that two guys control the vast majority of social media. It had no bearing on the fact that uh, a company like Cambridge Analytica, um, well, can't anymore because it's bust, but uh, (laughs) a company like Cambridge Analytica uh, can can collect your data and use it to manipulate you, and the people making those decisions are completely outside of your control. Mm. It has no bearing on that. So it, it, it deals with... Uh, data at a certain point but at arguably the more important level the governance level the the level where the decisions that affect all of us are being made the gdpr had no impact and we've as, a, as lawyers have really no other way to uh, to try and give you as citizens control over that
1: Uh
0: so we can't rely on lawyers i could be really cheeky and say there's a surprise (laughs) sorry
3: i could could have told you that much more quickly at the start (laughs) to be honest
0: (laughs) charles would you like to pick up on that the general governance point but Mm -hmm. also the point about ai and tell us where you see the the big issues and and what your concerns are around Mm -hmm. those two and a broad brush. Sometimes.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm going to resist the temptation to have a debate about <coughs> the GDPR, which I rather like, because <laughs> um, uh, I think it does more than than what, what Sam has pointed out. But that's a different uh, uh, a different debate. But um, if, if your if if the question is about um, what the general public understands is going on, we've heard quite a lot about the the tactics and the techniques that are used by um, uh, by companies, then um, I think there is a great need for companies and for governments as well, because governments are very, very big users of personal data and very big users of other kinds of data to uh, explain their data practices uh, to to the general public or to sections of the public or to um, members of various um, uh, parliaments. Um, especially about how the data that governments use relates to the decisions that are, that are made that um, affect people. Now, that kind of transparency, and it's a kind of fancy word, transparency, I think is absolutely um, essential um, because people are not only not aware of the practices that are going on, but they're not necessarily very aware of what their rights are, Uh, and where those rights come from, how they can pursue their rights, how they can, um, uh, what the limits of that pursuit might be even. Um, But uh, it's not just a a question of a one-way communication, here are your rights, here's what we do, but some kind of dialogue with the public about whether those practices should be going on uh, anyway. And we need to find forums within which that kind of debate can happen. Uh, NGOs and campaign organizations are very good at doing that, although uh, one might have reservations sometimes that they exaggerate the kind of doomsday um, uh, scenarios in order to gain attention. But we understand that. That's what campaign organizations do. And uh, I think that their very great merits um, uh, uh, override those those uh, faults. Um, So that kind of communication can't just be left to uh, governments themselves because they don't have an interest in making you more informed than you are about what they do with your data or with aggregates of data or anything um, uh, 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 like that. And they're also more likely to put a spin on it and to hype the beneficial uses of data. Now there are beneficial uses of data, of course, but when that is hyped, and the harms and the potential threats to democracy and to individual rights, those tend not to enter into the glossy pictures. Um, and they don't tend to end into the glossy sales brochures of the companies that make the stuff that are used by that is used by other companies and by governments to process data, to collect data, and to, uh, uh, and to use it. I think that schools, as well as NGOs, have an important role uh, to play in this. Um, we need, I think Eva mentioned, uh, uh, media literacy or data literacy, uh, if you like. I think that's uh, increasingly important, even at the very level of, now of primary schools, because it's, you know, it's young kids that are learning how to do things and maybe not being aware of, of some of the, uh, the downsides. What about elected representatives, members of this parliament, uh, members of other parliaments? Very few of them have any expertise whatsoever in these, in these matters, in data, in uh, technologies, in information technologies, and so on. And I wonder how they can evaluate what's going on, how they can evaluate the sales pitches that very often come from the companies that are selling the systems and selling the gizmos. I've been at, um, and it's not just members of, of parliament, but also uh, people in organizations who are procuring uh, this kind of stuff. I've been at conferences, and I've observed the sales pitches by companies, the glossy brochures, the, uh, the ways in which they present their their company's product that'll help you to analyze this or that kind of of, of data. And it is very, very powerful salesmanship. It is a very determined technique because there are millions and billions of pounds that are riding on it. And I think what is needed, uh, what has been needed for a long time in governments is intelligent procurement and the ways of cultivating intelligent procurement because they're spending this money on behalf of you and me and they may be buying things because they have been sold it without really understanding, and they're too embarrassed to say that they don't fully understand it, and a lot of the stuff to be understood is indeed difficult to understand. So there's a dilemma about procurement, and I think that's extremely uh, extremely important. We also ought to find out how far members of parliament are able to understand policy-related data, when they see charts and tables and graphs uh, and so forth so forth, and are asked to evaluate these things in order to understand particular policies, policy initiatives, policy options. I don't know that that, uh, that intelligence is um, uh, available very much to um, uh, uh, elected members. How to ask the right questions of data if you're trying to, 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 to make good policies for whatever it is, for climate, uh, for health, for, for uh, social services, uh, and, uh, and so on. Um, where do we get that kind of training? How does that happen? Factually, I don't know how it happens in the Scottish Parliament. Uh, I think I know a little bit about how it happens in the UK Parliament and the role of organizations like the, um, uh, the House of Commons Library, for example, in inculcating greater knowledge amongst uh, amongst members of, uh, uh, of parliament. But I come back to the main point that um, very few people with, with um, uh, te- technological understanding or training get into politics mm-hmm. at, that, at that kind of level. There are good examples of how even a kind of lay bunch of MPs or members of the House of Lords can put on investigations. Uh, can mount investigations into topics that are highly uh, technical and to gather the data from people who come and give that kind of evidence and then write them up in very, very good reports. I could name some if you, uh, uh, if you wanted. There has recently been a very good one from the House of Lords uh, Justice and Home Affairs. Is it Justice and Home Affairs Committee? Yes, uh, which is on this, this very sort of thing. Uh, and those are worth reading because they're very informative for members of the public. I know people don't like to read great, big, fat government documents such as we are all (laughs) bidden to to, to read, but you learn a lot through them. You learn a lot from the horse's mouth, as it were, uh, from the people who come to give evidence for those inquiries about what goes on, Uh, and, and that's very useful. Now, how do you filter that through to general understanding amongst the public. Uh, I don't know, and we don't have that long a time here today to open that out, but I think that what is really needed is is, um, public education of the kind that isn't preachy, that doesn't assume that people are idiots, could
0: I, maybe pick up presence, so. <laughs> Could I maybe pick that point up, Charles? Because yeah. I, think, I think you mentioned two things that struck me forcibly. And one, we were discussing earlier, would there be any school classes or school children here? And obviously, I don't think there's anybody um, of school age here but what oh, I heard sure. was almost that argument, which I've heard a lot recently, about what we need to be helping our young people do is learn critical thinking, not just about data, but about about everything, and um, so they don't believe everything without asking the questions. But as a plug for the Scottish. Scotland's Futures Futures Forum as as co-host here today, your point about the politicians is well made and the point of the Futures Forum is to try to provide opportunities for our members of parliament here to think beyond that electoral cycle. And we're doing a project over 20 years about democracy and AI um, is a big part of that. But you're absolutely right. We're talking to 129 MSPs who have a a limited knowledge in that area and who have lots of other challenges and things they need to learn. But that public education is an important point we shouldn't lose and I'm sure we'll come back to. Before I open up to the audience, Eva, you've said in a presentation before that a key the key words of our online lives are personalisation, convenience, and immediacy, and I would almost add Charles's point about rights. How do those things fit with a healthy democracy in that kind of wider context that we're discussing about data and AI?
2: Um, well, I suppose I think the, I think I remember that. <laughs> Thank you, remember that too. I think I think the, the point that I was making there is that that they're not, they're like the antithesis of of what you need. You know, what what you're looking for when you're talking about um, democracy and uh, and debate is collectivism, you know, representation of broad views and reflection. So, complete opposite. But when we're um, interacting online, you know, most people will gather their information, whether they intend to, whether it's a byproduct of other sort of engagement, whether that's Facebook or Twitter, online. So, you learn about the world about politics, about current events through sound bites um, through abridgments of, of wider information and you know research has shown us that very few people actually click onto the news story so much of our decision many of our decisions are being made on the basis of incredibly scant information and headlines and you know we all know that news is um, supported by news value. So when when a journalist picks a story, what they're um, what they're looking for is is effectively something that is um, surprising, um, is local, is considered to be sort of sensational, um, uh, is relevant to a particular context, whether it's timely. So there are less popular news values as well you know it's that the idea of um uh, man bites dog rather than dog bites man is the classic line isn't it what they're looking for is stuff that's shocking effectively and that's what creates the headline it's the shocking stuff in the news story it's not the information you really need so um all of these sort of issues that we've been talking about the kind of the the behavioral advertising um the tracking people and uh, uh, ensuring that they stay with the systems that they're engaging with and the kind of the, the polarization and also the lack of governance um, creates a situation within which personalization, convenience and immediacy is exactly what guides our political discourse because um, we expect things to be personalized to us now. Mm. We get irritated when they're not. Um, if something is not convenient, you know, we're all busy and actually what we're all concerned about are things like are we going to be able to afford our energy bills you know um oh my god the mortgage rate has gone up i need to buy food for dinner you're not thinking about which party you're going to vote for or what boris johnson is or isn't doing um you know or nicolas sturgeon you know n- nobody really cares about those things on an everyday basis and and so we are driven by um convenience to be able to meet our objectives incredibly quickly and so we don't engage in the reflective practice of reading news necessarily i mean some demographics might but the people who are most marginalised within society are those most under pressure at the moment, and those least likely to engage with the kind of content that then helps them make better decisions. And um, I think that's the the main issue. Is that, you know, I suppose if you're if you're in a university environment or you're in a policy environment, you have to read these documents. I read lengthy documents that are tedious for me. That, you know, never mind somebody doesn't have to read them professionally, and. Um, and even I would say I don't know how to make decisions about uh, you know uh, the, the kind of points that come up when we have a referendum or voting because they're, they're impossible decisions a lot of the time, and yet we're reducing them down to these sort of you know quick clicks where we just take a top slice of information because that's what's presented to us and we make those decisions. Um, so I would say that you know. Uh, I don't know how I don't know how you fix it either you know I was reflect on this quite a lot like oh how can we make it better well you know you get people to read more things how if you don't want to read a thing you're not going to read it you know there's no simple fix to this but stopping the kind of the design um, rules and the behaviors that we see companies engaging with at the moment the massive collection of data the combining of data uh, in order to make predictions about you as individuals all of those things need to be stopped. Or at least controlled more than they currently are. Before we can get to the questions of how do you get people to engage with content, um, which I think is is just you know it, it's one of those impossible asks just now. Um, so yeah, I, I, I that's a bit depressing, isn't it? But they that's, <laughs> that's my answer to the question. <laughs> We're, <laughs> We're all, there. all going to hell. It is yeah. really
0: interesting though because I'm quite a recent. I'll not even say a convert to Twitter. I I had my arm twisted for a particular purpose. And you're absolutely right. Once you've signed up for that purpose, you are hooked. And I was fascinated that they introduced a feature that said, do you want to read the article before you retweet it? Because I would never have thought of retweeting something where I hadn't actually read it. Because all you're doing is retweeting a headline that might bear no resemblance. And, of course, we've not talked about the kind of broader media. Because, of course, the journalists that write the articles aren't the people that write the headlines. Someone else writes the headline. So I thought that was a really interesting point. But the other thing we've not talked about at all, and my background in it is in newspapers and magazines, is ownership. And I think, Charles, you've made the point about, or, or one of you made the point about, you know, two people control the huge range of what's going on. It wasn't Sam. Um, So there is a bit about, you know, our newspapers are owned predominantly by three individuals most of whom are non-doms no other country in the world would allow their media to be so concentrated in the hands of such a small group of people and the same is true here but anyway that's me i'm (laughs) abusing my position as chair i can see a smile or two in the audience it's now over to you it's your opportunity to pose questions to the audience uh, to the the speakers and the panel or to make comments i do want to get as many people in as possible so i hope you'll keep your comments and questions brief if you put your hand up and I point to you someone will come to you with a microphone so if I take this lady here and the gentleman over here and then Anne in the background yeah you next.
2: Um, really really fascinating um, conversations um, I guess my broader question is is there any hope but perhaps more more specifically <laughs> um, I'm conscious as well of the fact that even well-meaning governments can take a very long time to get legislation put through i'm thinking about examples in the eu for example of how long it can take and you've got all the pressure against them from the likes of the united states where a lot of these big companies are obviously based but technology moves really really quickly so how can governments stay ahead of that and and obviously what, what more can we as citizens do i think on the education point i was conscious that finland i think are doing education of You know, through schools of uh, critical thinking, so maybe there are examples of you know other countries that are doing good things that we can learn from as well.
0: So, how do governments keep up or get ahead, and how can we help citizens? Somebody said teach in primary school, teach philosophy, there would be an interesting
3: approach.
0: (coughs) Sam, would you like to to kick off with that one?
3: Uh, sure. Um, well, I think. I, I kind of start from the position that it's, it's usually a good thing that legislation takes quite a, quite a long time um, because, well, as, as we saw with the COVID rules, where even the people that made them didn't know what they said um, because they hadn't ever been scrutinised. So I think scrutiny is helpful. Uh, but I take your point. It's, these things are moving at, at different speeds. Um, and I think the, the solution to that is having uh, not only a competent... Uh, but a motivated, powerful, and accountable regulator um, and the and the, this sort of bridges the gap for me between because um, that the regulator can't replace the need to to update legislation but they can possibly fill in the uh, f- fill in the gap and we have in the um, uh, in in both scotland and and england we've got the we 've got information commissioners uh, and there was a certainly a period when uh, when those information commissioners were 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 really working very hard to try and empower citizens uh, and the users of of, of data. Um, I think, arguably, certainly uh, down south, that has gone backwards uh, recently. And the the newly appointed uh, in, information commissioner in in England. Um, has essentially said, "Well, the people, you should trust the government with uh, with information." I think was his, uh, what he said before the DCMS select committee, and he's you know supported uh, bringing in fees for freedom of information requests. Um, and I, I, I don't know his views on uh, on this, but the certainly that DCMS has now uh, is now talking about fees for subject access requests. Um, so it's not so. The first step is to have a regulator that is, has the powers that they need to sort of respond to, uh, to different, uh, different issues. Um, but the, the second step is to, A, make sure you don't appoint a government poodle, um, and B, make sure the regulator themselves is accountable to someone other than the executive, because at the moment they're, they're not. Charles, do you want to pick up on that?
1: Yes, I, I do want to pick up on that because I think Sam has raised a very important point. He mentioned before the, the way in which the, the GDPR or the way it was translated into UK law in the, the, the Data Protection Act of, of um, um, a few years ago. The reforms that are going through now uh, or the proposed reforms uh, to uh, roll back those things are also to roll back the um, the scope and the powers of the um, uh, of the regulator yeah. of the the, uh, the Information Commissioner's Office, which is a UK office. Uh, that legislation is set up under the UK, uh, and that I think is a very dangerous um, sort of thing. But I don't want to go into sort of ad hominem things about the current commissioner and uh, his uh, his um, his predecessor, who is now back in Canada. Uh, But I think it is is quite right that you need to have a a vigorous regulator, but one who is armed with powers by legislation Mm -hmm. to be vigorous, to go after companies, to levy um, very significant fines. Um, that hasn't always been the case. And therefore, regulators have very often received a lot of flack, which ought to go to the legislators for not having granted the powers to the regulator to do, uh, to do X, Y, and Z. So I think that is, um, uh, 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 that is really very important. Um, but you also need to have legislation which tries not to keep up with technology, whatever that may mean, but that recognizes that technology doesn't just roll on of its own. It's not a kind of uncaused cause. Technology is decisions made by people who work in technological industries, right? Who design things, who deploy things, ultimately who use things in organizations that are using the end products of it. And there is a lot of important framework and detailed legislation on the books just now. For example, uh, legislation, although I think there's many things wrong with it, coming from the EU uh, called the AI Act, the Draft AI Act to regulate artificial intelligence. Um, Now, that's very good and one reads it avidly or it's hellishly difficult to read that that piece of, of draft legislation. But one thing that is very funny about it is that it seems not really quite to understand what the special nature is of artificial intelligence, and don't ask me for a definition of that, please don't, um, or of these advanced technologies, because the model for regulation that is being proposed in, in Brussels for this is um, product safety. Why? Because they know about the safety of cars, they know about the safety of toasters, they know about the safety of other things, so they say, oh, why don't we just adopt the model of regulating safety things and regulate AI under the label of safe AI. Mm. And I think that's, that is really barking up absolutely the wrong, the wrong tree. So that's not very good. So we need to have the ability to criticize what is being proposed for legislation, which will ultimately then, down the line, be a proposal for uh, having a, some regulatory machinery to enforce and to, to oversee what is, being, uh, what is being regulated. It's so a whole process of not just talking about regulators, uh, but talking about the whole legislative process that sets that kind of thing uh, uh, up. Um, I could go more uh, uh, on this about other means of regulation. Uh, okay. Maybe you'll call upon me later to yep, do that, I or I can say that in a closing statement.
0: And I think a really important point that Sam made, um, which I have a very personal vested interest in, which, which doesn't matter, is the bit about who the regulator is answerable to Mm. because if the regulator is answerable to the government Mm. that gives you a particular set of challenges whichever government's in power Mm. it really should be that a regulator is answerable to parliament which is a different model altogether
1: Mm. well as if i just Mm. just interject the information commissioner is not um uh, answerable to parliament actually Uh, the information commissioner is um, uh, appointed by her majesty and it's a separate um, that's the legal fiction, but it's yep. an important fiction, meaning that they can't be sacked by a minister. Ah. In other countries where there are ministerial appointments as regulators, they can be sacked, and they have been sacked mm-hmm. by government ministers. That doesn't happen.
0: No, that, that's encouraging, because normally the, the kind of model I'd looked at was it would be Parliament that could make that decision and you would need a two-thirds majority um, which would protect um, a government, You know, protect or yeah. regulator from the government. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, we've been discussing AI and obviously um, that's one of Eva's areas of specialism. I can't plug her book to be found outside because it's not out yet, <laughs> but there is a book coming out called What Do We Know and What Should We Do About AI? So I don't know if you want to pick up on some of the points Charles made there, yeah. but the, the question was about how can government stay ahead of technology? I think Charles has, has answered that in one that way, but also that bit about the public and, and education. Do you want to pick up on, on either of those points before I come to the next question?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> I, th- I think um, I'll have a stab at finding what we mean by AI.
4: <laughs>
2: so, I mean, it, it generally refers to just a, cl- a group of methods, different types of methods, that try and replicate um, a sense of... Uh, intelligence. It doesn't have to be human intelligence, it can be animal intelligence. And so when we talk about AI, we think about a thing. It's, it's not. It's just it's a whole raft of things that sit within an academic discipline. It can be machine vision, it can be um, machine learning. Most of the stuff we talk about is machine learning, um, which is the kind of algorithmic-based um, method or set of methods. So um, the main issues from AI come... Well, we've probably covered a lot of them in, around data analysis when we talk about machine learning um, algorithms and you know they're used by things like by by Facebook and by Google but um, there's another class of machine learning algorithms called deep neural nets or you know the the more complex algorithms and um, they are self-learning so the whole purpose of them is that they function actually they don't function like a human brain but they've been designed on, on some of the principles that we understand about the functioning of the human brain and um they are probably the most problematic algorithms because often you can't work out how a decision was reached. So if you put data in uh, and then something else comes out at the end, you you know, you wouldn't know how that how the how the algorithm got to that point. And so therefore, accountability becomes problematic because how can you decide which bit of data or which um, piece of information or which contextual cue meant that that algorithm pushed out that decision? So then governance becomes much more important because it's not just about intelligibility of algorithms and people talk about explainable AI a lot, um, which is incredibly complex when you talk about those kinds of algorithms, less complex when it's more simple algorithms. Um, But it's about how do you ensure that um, companies are doing the right things in terms of data management basically and data processing and um, minimization of data bias, which is another big thing that we've not mentioned yet, but that's probably one of our, our largest sort of threats and concerns that comes out of Um, machine learning and and AI is that it's fed on data, and data is a historic thing. It's drawn from us from our behaviors in the past. Um, There's some live data collection and some decisions are made in the moment, but the majority of um, systems use historic data. And historically, we've been racist and sexist. And so the outcomes of those machines are racist and sexist. And the problem with that, um, aside from the fact we find it morally repugnant, is that then um, those things are embedded within different types of decisions around the benefits that people can secure, whether they are um, considered by the police as being a threat, whether they're likely to um, re-offend. Algorithms are being used in all these different areas of life and are becoming um, part of the mechanism that decides what happens to us, what happens to our in our professional lives, in our personal lives, in our economic lives. And, and that's really where the kind of the things like the AI Act become incredibly important as an idea, whether it's the right um, regulatory instrument is a matter for discussion but the fact that it's recognized that actually you need to be able to push back against some of these decisions and find out where it came from in order to make the people that own those um, systems accountable is incredibly important i think Um, the other thing i just wanted to pick up was the idea that when we talk about you know regulation we seem to be talking about it as though it's a pure process that like a group of well-intentioned people sit in a room and they make some decisions (laughs) but in reality i've worked with large tech companies i worked for a large tech company um, and they're in the room You know, it's not like the regulation appears and Facebook goes, oh, my God, we didn't expect that. They were there lobbying hard for years. You know, um, in national governments at the European Union level, Facebook have a a thing called European conversations and they talk to MPs and they invite experts along. And we come and have these conversations about what European regulation ought to look like. So these these decisions are not shaped by... bureaucrats. They're shaped by people that have skin in the game. And we shouldn't really forget that, that actually, of course, some of these things not fit for purpose, because there's been somebody in that room saying, you can't do that, because we won't be able to create these products. And then the economy will shrink. And so these are wider problems, I suppose. And it's good to be mindful of that. And of course, like the media literacy thing would pick that up. The other point, I think, is useful to to say that it'll be nice to have machine learning specialists in the discourse. Increasingly, that is the case. People are sort of engaging with policy. I know that the chief scientific advisor for DCMS at the moment is a computer scientist. He's my old PhD supervisor, in fact. (laughs) Um, Tom Rod, but he, uh, but just having people like that who can sort of say that's a really ridiculous decision because you don't understand how that system works is really important when regulation is being designed, mm. and it stops some of those issues about regulation being slow because largely you can you know you you can't predict which is going to be the popular technology, but. We know what areas of research are having most money invested in at the moment. You can make reasonably good predictions about what's going to be a problem in the future. And, of course, we have ethicists who you know, cluster together to tell us that we're all going to hell. So um, <laughs> that's also useful, I think. OK, Charles wants to make a point. If you could keep it really brief, because I'm keen. I've got at least
0: two other people with their hands up. So, Charles, you want to Why up?
1: don't you take the questions first, and so I can come, come
0: back on. Gentleman in the front row there, and then Anne over on that side.
1: Yes, I've noticed that on more and more websites, they're asking for more and more information in the form of cookies. And we use cookies. And, and in some cases, you can opt out. In other cases, you can partially opt out. And in some cases, you can't opt out at all. You, you must agree, or at least take some action, uh, before you can see what's, what's further on the website. So the question is,
5: what information do these actually collect? what kinds of algorithms are produced as a result, and uh, should we be concerned about it? Because everyone seems to have them, public sector, private sector, it it doesn't seem to make much difference. I've no idea what information they collect. I
2: can have a stab, (laughs) all the information. (laughs) Um, uh, But but, basically, yes, when when you're, um, on a website, uh, this comes back to the point I made about consent, probably not super clearly, <laughs> right at the beginning, which is that the point where you sort of say yes to cookies or no to cookies, um, that's you consenting to that data being used, uh, and the assumption is that you've read the privacy policy that underpins it, um, uh, and the lengthy documents are associated with that, and you've made your decision on the basis of it. So um, it assumes that's that that's what. It informed consent looks like online. It's basically you checking a box. And as I mentioned before, you were trained to check those boxes. So it's a meaningless thing. But the data that's collected about you is anything about your interactions. And actually, if you don't disable cookies and you can you can download um, all kinds of different uh, little systems that will sit on your laptop and uh, block cookies So, you know, that's another way of doing it rather than just trusting the website or going through that laborious process, get a cookie blocker. Some things won't happen for you when you're um, engaging with the website, but nothing dramatic. And actually, if a lot of the service is being reduced, then you know you probably didn't want to be using that website anyway for the data collection reasons. But, um, you know, it'll collect behaviours that you exhibit on that on that website, but not just that, also um, any website you go afterwards, it tracks you. So tracking cookies, uh, a, a few academics have done some really nice visualizations of what happens when you go from one website and then to another, and it spreads out like this massive web. You know, so um, as soon as you say yes, and you only really have to say yes to one or two to, to create a colossal profile of your behaviors, but you know, most people just click through. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely worth not agreeing, just mindlessly agreeing to those things. I think it's, it's best because be, uh, this comes down to, isn't it, why does it matter? People always say, like, why do people care about their privacy? Why should they? Why does it matter? And I struggle that question, frankly, because we've never seen anything bad happen, like bad, bad, bad. Mm-hmm. But... Well, I know, we Charles is going to say know. We wouldn't know. Yeah, exactly, we wouldn't we know. Wouldn't know. But, but what I've noticed really interesting is since the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the States, there was certainly in the field that I work in and also in some women's rights organisations, companies coming out and saying, delete your menstrual tracker. apps. Delete it immediately because that not only collects information about your data, but is also is connected to other apps on your phone or other apps online if you use an online one. And so I think it only takes a tiny change in the political climate for what you think to be benign data collection to become heavily politicised and problematic. Mm -hmm. You never know what side of the law you're going to be on.
0: I think that I hadn't thought of that one, Eva, and I just saw something this week about women in some states in America now terrified to look at anything online at all about abortion Mm -hmm. because they will be tracked to be breaking the law. Sorry, Mm -hmm. do you want to pick up that quickly? An an
3: example of a a bad thing happening partly as a result of, of cookies... Um, at the in the last week of the oh well you may disagree about whether it 's a bad thing, but it was an unfair thing at the in the last week of the two thousand and sixteen brexit referendum campaign um, the Leave.eu, eu um, or possibly vote leave i 'm not sure which one it was um, ran a series of targeted adverts uh, that said that seventy six million uh, refugees were going to uh, come to the u k uh, because 76. Turkey had uh, Uh, Turkey was going to join the EU. 76 million is the population of Turkey. It would only (laughs) have happened had literally everyone left Turkey and come over here. It was obviously bullshit, Um, but no one called it out until after the vote had happened. And the reason no one did that was because that message was not sent to anyone who was likely to be able to call it out. It was targeted at people who are A, likely to believe it, or B, not likely to make a fuss about it. And there was a. Uh, and no one's proved the causation necessarily, but we do know that there was a significant percentage swing from remain. To leave in that during that time, that was enough to alter the outcome of the election. One of the ways that they were able to target those people was through the information the, the information profiles that have been built up about them online. And part of the way you build up an information profile is through cookies tracking your different use of of websites. Um, so that is, you know, that's one example of how you can literally turn an election.
1: Uh, using this technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just a quick tailpiece uh, uh, on that. Um, the question of what difference does it make? Does it really matter if they know all this about you? We started the, the conversation um, uh, this afternoon by pointing to uh, differential pricing and mm-hmm. differential uh, offers being made to different people. And if, you, if you want to go and buy an apple, uh, if you want to go and buy an apple and if he wants to go and buy an apple and you go to the same shop, you're charged the same as he is. But online, uh, if you want to buy an apple or whatever it is, you might be charged more than him because they know certain things about you, which lead them to think that you are likely to pay that, and, and, and he wouldn't. So... Is, is that 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 is a kind it's of distortion drastic. in the economy, if you like? Mm-hmm. Uh, now that may, may not make many much difference if you're talking about apples, but if you're talking about other things which are significantly more important, uh, like insurance premiums and so on, then that does really make a Absolutely. difference. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, Anne um, has been waiting here, and then the lady with the glasses in the third row
6: there. Uh, I'll preface it by saying you're far too intelligent not to read an article before you send it on to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, <laughs> but, um, in a sense a double bind question if we always have to opt out the commercial repercussion of it only being opt in would be an interesting one to consider but I'd like in particular if I may to address my question to Dr Forbes you were talking about you and Charles were talking about procurement the miscarriage of justice in the post office case and the taking apart by Patrick Green of Fujitsu in the civil action is memorable and significant and had consequences. My question is, how do we deal with the corporate governance and malfeasance of misdirected procurement within the post office, an organization or institution which was overseen by civil servants and during the decades of the post office scandal, by nine ministers. It is one of the most shameful things so far this century. Sam, that one's for you. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: well, the I think mainly we dealt with the ministers, if I'm correct, by promoting them, um, if I remember it correctly. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that, that in itself might be a, a, a sign of the... Um, the the issues with our democracy, um, but no, you're you're absolutely right. The the this was and for, for those who uh, might might not be familiar with this case, this was a um, I suppose really a, a precursor uh, to the the problems we have with uh, with data gathering today because it was its result revolved around a computer system and it was uh, the Horizon computer system was going to link up all of the post office branches and it was going to be the largest. Um, Civil, uh, non military system of its type in Europe. And this was, it was, came in, started coming in about 96. Um, and it was this fantastic thing which only had one tiny flaw, which it was that it didn't work in any way, shape, or form. Um, and it produced uh, spurious results uh, when in individual postmasters' accounting um, s- systems and essentially said, there should be money there should be sums of money there that that weren't there and instead of remedying this uh, this situation the the post office prosecuted hundreds and hundreds uh, for a variety of, uh, of different offenses around theft and fraud um, and a number of those prosecuted about 72 I think of those prosecutions were uh, those convictions were overturned in the court of Appeal last year in which I was instructed but that's only the the start um, now the, in terms of holding the, the individuals uh, accountable, um, there is not a structure in place to do that um, because the civil structure, um, the, the, the accountability there is, well, these people, some of these people were falsely imprisoned, they were falsely, uh, uh, falsely convicted so they can get compensation. But that compensation is going to come from the post office, not from the individuals who, who made these decisions. Um, the, the members of the board have uh, gone on to other jobs. Uh, the civil servants have gone on to other jobs, uh, have, have been promoted. The only way um, to, to hold these, them, them accountable, uh, I think, is through an independent public judge-led inquiry with the power to compel evidence. Um, because and that, uh, that is the only body, because there's, no, there's not a body of law that specifically exists to deal with this. Um, So that is the only body that will have the ability to say, right, you, we think you're involved. You need to come and answer some questions about this. And so at the the end of this process, we're going to produce a report that says, well, this guy said this and it wasn't true and it led to these five convictions. This woman said this other thing that was true, uh, but she was ignored. Um, It's only by identifying that... That we can start to hold people accountable but even if we do that it then relies on political will to say well right these civil servants won't be promoted further <laughs> these ministers won't remain in in cabinet and unfortunately increasingly who gets promoted in government depends not on are you good at your job did you wrongfully imprison 200 people it's are you loyal to the prime minister and so that's where the system sort of breaks down. So, so I, I know you asked me how do, how do we hold them accountable. And I suppose the answer, the short answer is, I don't know. In our current system, in our current system, I'm not sure we can in the way that you're talking about. What about
5: Horizon
6: though? and Fujitsu?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a that's a very good point. But uh, again, the so Fujitsu. For, I think, it maybe, just...
0: I think it maybe takes us off the data point Sorry. anyway. So yeah, is it? maybe you that's you what, a question.
3: It's, it's a really interesting question and I want to think about it. Um, but maybe do you want to talk about it afterwards? afterwards okay. the, uh, I'm going straight to another
6: event, but if you'll hear me
3: yes. Okay, brilliant. We'll do that.
4: The lady with the glasses on her head in the middle row. And then there's someone up at the back and Hello. We'll um I wanted to um, sort of as well, so answer the question a little bit about what the bad things Uh, from privacy Um, um, and in the context of the work that I do which refers to something else that's come up which is that you know where is the critical thinking training for primary schools uh, Mm -hmm. school pupils so just to say that that's something that I do I go into schools and do creative learning with um, P7s and S1s Um, so kind of get them to tell stories and create robots and find out about the history of the internet and what it means now and why we're living in the world that we're living so it's a a programme about digital citizenship and cyber resilience and so there's a bit of good news in there as well because the Scottish Government and the Cyber Resilience Unit have been funding this for the past three or four years also with GCH, um, no, the NC National Cyber Security Centre so there is willingness to that Um, critical thinking education for young people, and they love it as well. And they are very well informed and very eager to learn and be creative with it all. And one of the things that we talk about, about why it's important, is that there was um, a famous case of a young woman under the age of 16 who was pregnant and hadn't told her family in America and because of her searches online for various different vitamins and things, though she was sent a packet of nappies, and so her father found out that she was pregnant before she was ready to tell her family, and he went and complained, and so it does sound like this was quite a loving, caring environment, and nothing bad happened to her because of it, but it could well have been all kinds of reasons why that young person was pregnant by somebody in that household, potentially. So the, the potential for harm when you mess with people's privacy is enormous, yeah. both on a personal and also like the national yep. and global levels of democracy.
0: Well, she told the story the other way around though, because it's good to know that you're actually in there addressing <laughs> the question the lady in the front asked earlier. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And those those stories are terrifying. Can um, I just say
1: one, say one yep. thing? A few years ago, Eva and I, I haven't thought about this since, yeah. we were involved in thinking about um, smart toys mm-hmm. for little yeah, kids. Yeah. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we didn't get the grant, but we <laughs> <laughs> did the research. Uh, but you know, this is being developed quite a lot by Disney and lots of other companies. Mm-hmm. A multi-billion-pound uh, market around the world of cuddly toys which gather information <gasps> from from the kids mm-hmm. and possibly with Bluetooth. can Ron can, can send it. Kayla, out is that the otherwise? name of the doll? Do you
2: remember the Kayla doll? Yeah. Kayla, the yeah, Kayla doll, that's right. And uh,
1: in Norway, that was banned, actually. They banned Kayla, I believe, mm-hmm. in Norway because activist groups got up, you know, campaign against it and so on. So these are cuddly toys, you know, you become familiar with it and you almost like the sort of Alexa thing, I guess. Yes. Uh, and, um, you know, so th- there's lots of new niche markets which are very, very lucrative, which kids are involved in as potential customers, and it's very important that they should know about this. Live
4: from Sorry? I think there's even been examples of live broadcasting. Yeah. Of yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: OK, so a warning to any parents in the audience. There was someone in the back rows, the gentleman there.
5: Hello. Um, having listened to the panel, um, if anything, I think I'm slightly more depressed by the Orwellian world that we actually (laughs) live in. However, um, at the same time, I think my mind was turning to antidotes to how we deal with this. Um, It's not just about education and at its earliest level, uh, obviously being an important component to that, or indeed uh, regulation um, and how that might operate but I was also thinking about power structures, Mm -hmm. political power structures, and I I wondered to what extent the panel thought that increasingly inverting our power structures, to what extent would that make any difference, or are algorithms so powerful that it wouldn't really put such organisations, whether it be corporates or other bodies, Put, put them up or down, but I just wondered whether we need to think about uh, purge structures in a more effective way of, of, of dealing with and controlling uh, information of various kinds that come to us, um, and perhaps uh, acting in a way to combat uh, what seems to be the cons- very considerable manipulation that mm-hmm. goes, on, goes on on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. And I'll give the panel a minute or two to to reflect on that, because I do think you're right, we have focused a lot on all the risks and the dangers, which are enormous. But we also have to acknowledge that that data could be a huge power for good, if the power structures were were in place to to make sure that was how it was directed. So Sam, would you like to kick off on that?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm so glad you, you raised that point, because I've been sort of sitting here thinking that I've missed the main point in this, these these questions and answers. And the the key point is this is I know it's in a new paradigm, but it's a very old issue. It's the oldest issue, the oldest debate in democracy, which is who has power, who doesn't, and how is it controlled. And that is the only, really the only question that matters in a, in a democracy. And so the and I think the actually comes back to, to your question, the better answer I could have given to that was the suggestion you've made, which is we need to break down the power structure, the, the fundamental power structures here. And so that means uh, both in the private sector and the public sector. And we, I think we tend to think of the state as the only sort of concentration of, of power in, the, in, in a society. Um, and we so we particularly think about holding the state accountable, but that's actually not correct. Any concentration of power needs to be uh, made accountable, uh, held accountable. And so, as citizens, it's not enough that we get to vote on our government. We need also to be not necessarily in the same way, but we need to find a way to, to hold all uh, all concentrations of power accountable. And corporates, particularly corporates that deal with uh, well, no. Corporates is a really good way to start um, because these are large <laughs> concentrations of power. Some of that manifests in, uh, in, in through data and online. Some of it manifests in, in other ways. And the boards of co- uh, corporations want to make money. That's their job. That's OK. That's what they're supposed to do. But what is not OK is to kind of sit back and think, Oh, well, you know, the, we can just sort of trust them to be nice guys and do, the, do good things and look after us. Because they're not supposed to do that. They can't. It's unfair on them to expect them uh, to do that. So we need to find ways to give both the people uh, who work in, and employees uh, greater power uh, over, um, o- over the, the sector that they're, that they're in, but also citizens who are affected by it greater power over the, the sector that they're in. Um, and the second point I want to make on that, I, we, I've heard and said something around the li- along the lines of complexity or complex a lot. And it, it, this feels complex to me because I, I don't have the sort of te- technical know-how um, that, uh, that uh, Professors Rav and, and Luger have uh, there. So it, it kind of, this whole issue sort of scares me uh, a little bit because I don't understand the, the tech But actually, I don't think it needs necessarily to be complex, because at the moment, we're dealing with a very simple issue, which is that there is an asset that's our data, and that asset can be used in lots and lots and lots of different ways. Some of those ways are damaging to us. So the simple thing to do is say, don't use it in those ways. And... I think possibly uh, Eva's already given us the answer to the reason why that is not the case, um, be, uh, because the people helping to make those regulations want to use it in, uh, in ways that are damaging. Um, but it can be as simple as that. So I think the answer is make power accountable and make simple rules.
0: I didn't think I'd find myself challenging a barrister, but I would have to say actually, and it partly answers Anne's question from earlier about the post office, if you are a director of a company, you might think your purpose is to make money, but if you look at your obligations under the Companies Act, you have several obligations, and if those were being properly regulated and fulfilled, they include responsibility for your employees and the communities in which you operate. Mm. So it's a really interesting mm. point that we have a Companies Act, and I, I spoke to a governance mm. expert who said, if you ask most directors on some of our biggest corporations, they won't be able to tell you what the seven obligations are. Mm. If they could tell you and they were fulfilling them, a lot of this wouldn't be an issue. That's a debate for another. Yeah, time. <laughs> it's going
3: to come back on that one.
0: Giles and then Eva.
1: Yeah, um, we've been talking all along about regulation and about laws and about legal environments and so on, Um, the word ethics hasn't Mm, really surfaced. And in in recent years, there's been a a great flourishing of um, the the intended development of ethical thinking about these things, because all the issues that we have raised today are not just a matter of law, uh, but they're a matter of, of, of ethics. Now, ethics sounds like a very kind of soft, cuddly, term how do you get people to think ethically people in decision-making positions monopolists governments whatever to think about the ethical dimensions of what they're doing i mean the law is is rooted in ethics anyway ethical principles infuse the law but separately from that there is also Uh, ethical thinking which could be applied to many of these issues. Now, there's been a raft of, and one can criticize that everybody's jumping on the bandwagon to produce ethical frameworks, lists of ethical values, ethical principles, and so on. Uh, Part of my academic work is to look at all of these things and and, um, see what I want to make of it, what we ought to make of it. Um, But one of the things where it can have some traction is in a practical technique called an ethical impact analysis, uh, an ethical impact assessment. Uh, We're familiar with data protection impact assessments, DPIAs under the legislation that's been mentioned, but now what has come along is ethical impact assessment. Um, And UNESCO just last last November ratified a, a, a document which all 193 UNESCO countries signed up to Um, for uh, ethical AI, for the development of ethical thinking and ethical practical mechanisms within uh, uh, AI around the world. Now it's great, you can sign, you know, if you're a country, you can sign up to that, but what does it really mean? Mm. One of the things it does mean is to put in practice um, and to reinforce Uh, a a practice which is already being used called ethical impact assessment. It's being used in governments. It's being used elsewhere uh, as well, in which if you're proposing a new system using an advanced technology, you have not only to say, does it comply with the data protection law, but does it comply with these ethical values and, and so on? And how do you begin this document? You begin by describing the data. Where do you get the data from? How do you get it? Who else gets it? What do you do with it? What's the algorithm you use? Can you explain this? Not the details of the algorithm, the mathematical formulas, but describe to somebody who is interested and and plausibly sentient what happens, how does it crunch the data, and what would be the impact of it upon minority groups, upon disabled groups, upon uh, one gender or another, and so forth, and describe these to the satisfaction of those who are scrutinizing this document, which ultimately could be the regulator, Mm -hmm. or could be a parliament, or could be the general public. If you make these impact assessments um, available to the public, it would increase the amount of knowledge and understanding that people might have. Uh, And um, uh, I've seen these documents in government being used in the area of law enforcement. Because I have some advisory positions to do in in various governments on, uh, on, on concerning law enforcement, where ethical impact assessments are required to be done. It comes under the Equalities Act mm-hmm. of uh, 2010, and under a thing called the public Ser- public sector equality requirement. Duty. P- Duty. P- <laughs> P.S.E.D. P.S.E.D. That's right. P-S-C-D. Yeah. Okay. Um, so but, uh, I just wanted to say no, really- that the ethical side of it can be developed and it's not, uh, it's not rapid science either. Mm. Thank you. I'm conscious of time and I do want to pose a kind of final
0: question um, to the panel to give them a chance to kind of wrap up. Um, so can I come to Eva and let you deal with the points you might want to make there? But then maybe just go straight into the final question, which is if you have a single message for the people in the room, me and the audience, about what we as citizens should do to protect ourselves and our democracy, there's a great big catch-all, but you can use it as your
2: kind of closing
0: <clears throat> okay. remark that Gosh. you want to pick up that, that question first. Question.
2: Um, uh, okay, <laughs> or you can yeah. answer
0: this one and then have time to think about that and I'll no, ask yeah, well, well, I'll,
2: you. I'll, I'll pick up on the points made by, um, by Charles and Sam first. So, um, I totally agree about the power issue. That's something I think that we Tiptoed around a little bit because it just seems it's so central and it's so obvious. And I think it's just like, oh, yeah, of course, bringing us back to power is the perfect way to do to make us think uh, more critically about this. Um, whether you, you mentioned about inverting power structures and whether that would help. And I was sort of sitting here thinking, would it, would it? I don't know. But I mean, there, there are some examples where um, employees of companies have challenged. Um, the decisions made by their corporation. So Google um, is a particular example that I use quite often which is um, they had a project called Project Maven which was um, where they had a defense contract and what they wanted to do was to um, sell the technology that they developed facial recognition technology uh, to be used in weaponry. Uh, And Google employees did a mass walkout uh, and challenged this, wrote an open letter and it became a massive sort of media item and they backed down on that particular contract. I hasten to say they do have continuing defence contracts, as do all the big tech companies, but they backed away from that. And then another company popped up in America, took the contract, and actually they're far worse than Google would ever have been potentially. But you know, and this is the environment within which we're working, is it's that you you take power from one place and it pops up somewhere else. It's almost like you're playing whack-a-mole constantly with mm-hmm. regulation and also with where your attention should be. You know, one moment we think Facebook's the sort of demonic company, and the next minute something else crops up somewhere else, probably to do with, you know, biometric sen- se- uh, sensing or facial recognition, I suspect will be, you know, the next sort of scary thing. Um, and just being aware of that climate and knowing where the next thing comes is is important. Um, one of the things about ethics i mean i was an ethics advisor for a while for Microsoft research and um uh, I mean one of the things I would say is that it 's dealt with in a very particular type of way um, and uh, often very tied closely to tie very closely to regulations so um you know the, the the ethics person within that company is a, is a legal person they're not a moral philosopher you know no, they're not somebody or a sociologist or somebody thinks widely about these things they think about it in a very particular way now that way is not the wrong way but it does tell you how these companies think about things they're thinking about compliance mm-hmm. they're not thinking about how do we do the morally right thing and if they do they scream it from the rooftops and that's been called ethics washing by um you know several academics i think it's ben Wagner that called, coined the term wasn't it but basically where he was saying that you know ethics is um coming out and publicly saying oh we'll create ethical frameworks is a way that they bypass regulation so they, they're sort of saying but we're already doing those things we don't need to be regulated look how good we are we've written it on a piece of paper and so you know this is the climate within which we're operating and that feels legitimate to lots of people when people when corporations come out and they say they're going to do this it's like oh that seems reasonable they're definitely going to do that and they do have structures internally i worked on one of facebook's advisory groups where they bring us products that they're about to put in they say are these good or bad and we go oh, terrible and then they go away and sometimes those products disappear and sometimes they appear. But um, the the thing that also is probably worth mentioning is that nobody in those companies I've ever worked with believes that what they're doing is wrong mm-hmm. they absolutely you know that phrase drinking the Kool-Aid that's exactly what it is in fact mm-hmm. literally they give you Kool-Aid in some of the companies you know, <laughs> free, free Kool-Aid in the fridge um, and and they you know they believe like Facebook believe that their mission is about connecting people every Facebooker will tell you that they're about making connections and creating a thriving social environment it's really hard <laughs> to talk to somebody about like about what, what might be the long term harms when they don't believe that they could possibly Possibly be doing anything wrong, and so there's also this culture within which you know tech people operate that is unimaginable until you're there. You know, in fact, like the, the campuses, if you've been on a, a large tech uh, company's campus, everything's there, they have barbers, they have restaurants, they have all the services you need. They never leave the little world of Facebook or Microsoft, or, you know, it's just they're just there. And so, because there's so little influence from the wider world, you know, that's what you're arguing with, that's the person that you're having a conversation with trying to convince them that what they're doing is morally repugnant. It's just like, no, they don't see it. So um yeah I think it's there are these instruments and they are important but I just I'm super skeptical about them you know it's my (laughs) bread and butter like you know I'm on the same sort of beside the the wall as as Charles it's just the more I see these things being deployed the more I just think they're not solving the problem and the last point I'd make is that the future is really hard to predict and the main weakness of ethical impact assessments like like privacy impact assessments I suppose is that we don't know tech tech is adopted and appropriated I mean the internet that wasn't not what it was designed for right so um, we can't tell when we're creating a product where it's going oh or what people are going to do with it. And so, if the extent of your ethical impact assessment is making sure that when it comes out of the gate, it's you know solid morally, that's not really solving our problems mm. because the, the largest issues occur when they're when they're used, you know, and, and applied in different contexts. Yeah.
0: Okay, we are very nearly out of time, so Sorry. I'm
2: conscious. Sam, and then Charles and Eva, if you want to
0: add anything else. I pause the question. You can.
3: The one message? The well, it's it's very simple, guys. Just one simple thing we need to do, which is fundamental constitutional reform of every aspect of the state. <laughs> what do you do? But the, the serious point there is: everything we've suggest, uh, talked about today is about regulation, uh, and it's about the the, uh, the balance of power and the distribution of power. Government is not going to regulate to protect all of you unless it's accountable to all of you. And it's, it can only make government accountable by reforming our constitution. Um, so that's what we've got to do.
1: Charles? Uh, not much more to add. Uh, I'm probably as skeptical as Ava is about the, the ethics stuff, although I'm willing to give it more leeway because it. it um, It's not a one-off thing, you know, you iterate as you learn more about what the future. The one thing I wanted to raise is the question of security and safety. Uh, Lots of data is used for national security purposes. National security politicians will say is the number one priority, the number one uh, rationale for the state is to keep you safe, to keep you secure. There is no definition of security in legislation Uh, There's no definition of security in uh, the um, uh, intelligence uh, service legislation surrounding that. We need to open up what we mean by safety, Mm -hmm. what we mean by security, and whether um, our rights and freedoms and liberties and privacy have to be held in the balance against something called security and safety. That is the way it is normally put by politicians and, uh, and others. I think that's a false dichotomy. Uh, and uh, I think that the question about security and safety needs to be dealt with more than just by mentioning those terms, security and safety, in which we then say, oh, well, that's okay then, so you can do what you want with my data as long as you keep me safe and secure, because I think there is a lot more to be said about that. That's
0: a really important point, and we could probably have had a whole discussion on that <laughs> issue <if you laughs> alone. Sometime, we yeah. should. Well, it. <laughs> Eva, do you have any final comment you'd um, like to make?
2: Yeah, I'm just going to come back to that term, data vultures, um, mm-hmm. because I, I was thinking... Are they vultures? And and I think um, I would disagree with it to say that they are, they're not because vultures are scavengers, like these are curators and creators of data, you know, platforms are not benign and neutral, they might want you to believe that they are, but actually, there's a whole infrastructure that is designed to elicit, generate, use, reuse and apply data. So they're not vultures at all, they're like the problem. And um, the uh, the power rests unfairly with them. And until we have the kind of reform that Sam talked about, I think um, what I'd say is be an active consumer because that's what it means to be a citizen yeah. today, right? You're not just a, a you know, citizen working in a public sphere. How you consume, what you consume, the rules that you apply, they're the things that will keep you safe in the short term. So you know, find out about cookie blockers, um, make sure that what you're reading has an element of veracity and make sure that you're informed because that's, I think, the only way that you can be certain that you're protected.
0: Thank you very much, all three of you, for being so concise. And you've just reminded me of something someone told me a very long time ago when we were not in this high-tech world, but he said, we talk about information. You start with data, you turn it into information, that becomes knowledge, and if you really do well, that becomes wisdom, (laughs) and maybe we'll all leave here today a little bit wiser, thanks to the contributions from our panels. Just to remind you, Sam will be in the garden lobby signing his book if anybody wishes to go and join him there, (laughs) either to further the conversation or to buy the book and get it signed. This panel event is one of the last events of the the festival, but you do have time to join um, a couple of other discussions. Uh, One that will already have begun but you can still join is Do You Trust Politicians? And to finish the festival this evening, we've got two different but equally interesting discussions. One is in conversation with the writer Liam Sissy on his best selling Mm. memoir my name is why and the other which picks up sam's point is a discussion on the state of the uk union so do feel free to join we have to end there but i would like to thank all of you for joining this event this afternoon when you could have been out there in the glorious sunshine Um, but also a huge thank you to our panel sam eva and charles and i'd like you to thank them in the usual way (laughs)